Hebrews chapter 9. Last week we looked at the opening verses of the chapter. And today we're going to look at the remainder of it, which is going to be a haul. So get ready. Um, this, just to remind you where we are in the letter, um, this, this is a chapter nearing the end of one of the longest uh, sustained teaching sections, uh, uninterrupted teaching sections in the letter between the warning passages. You know, there's five major warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and we've already looked at several of them early, early in the letter. But we haven't seen one. We're in chapter 9 this morning, but we haven't seen one since chapter 6, the, the early part of chapter 6. And we won't see one again until the end of the next chapter, to the end of chapter 10. And in between... Those warning passages, um, it, it's been several chapters of just teaching, drawing deeply from the Old Testament, showing how who Jesus is and what he came to do is the fulfillment of and thus better than everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, we, we're a broken record, but that's intentional. Uh, the Old Covenant that the original readers, many of the original readers of this letter were tempted to go back to, were tempted to leave Christ, leave the church, to go back to the Judaism that they came from. So the primary aim of this letter is kind of twofold. It's, it's, it's primarily it's to encourage those who are tempted to walk away from the faith, those who are tempted to walk away from Christ, to persevere in Christ, not to walk away. Um, that's, that's why you have all the warnings. And that's also behind a lot of these, this, uh, the teaching sections, not just to warn them against walking away, but teaching them how much better Christ is and why to stay. That's the primary aim. But the second aim is, is you can get so carried away by the warnings given to those who were tempted to walk away to think that all of them were tempted to walk away. But they weren't. I mean, this was written to a congregation in which some of them were tempted to walk away from Christ, hence the letter, hence the warnings. But there were many of them who were not tempted to walk away. I mean, they were tempted to, uh, they, they, were, they, they, they wanted to persevere. And, and this letter was, was also an encouragement to them in understanding their faith, their confidence in Christ, the assurance of their forgiveness, reminding them of their hope, because even if they weren't being tempted to leave uh, Christ and go back to Judaism like some were doing, um, they still had the same struggles we do. And on top of the fact that they, they faced persecution that we don't have to face. Um, life was hard. You know, and, and you know, we're, we're in chapter 9, but, the, you know, just think, by the time we get to the end of this letter, it will be enormously comforting to that group of people when they get to chapter 13 and, and, and they read, uh, Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for here, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. He could have said that out of the gate in, in chapter 1. But by the time you get to chapter 13, after the, all of this buildup, all of not only the warnings, but all the buildup of all the teaching how uh, Jesus is greater because of this, and because of that, and because of this, and because of that, there's a, all of that behind that admonition to, to press on because here we have no lasting city. Well, as we're here in chapter 9, Remember that he's in the middle of this whole section of the letter where he's comparing practically everything from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant through Moses, New Covenant through Jesus. He has shown in chapters 5 through 7, for example, 
that Jesus is the greater high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We spent three whole chapters thinking about that um, to bring us to God. He, he, he's, he's in the middle of a section show how, showing how Jesus accomplished his work as our great high priest in a greater holy of holies, in a, in a greater temple, affecting an eternal salvation through a greater sacrifice, through the sacrifice of himself, which he'll carry on in the next chapter. Why is he doing all that? Remember what we said last week, before we get into the chapter for today, just remember what we said last week, that he's doing all of this to show that even as glorious as the old covenant was, and it, and it was, that was our whole point last week, even as glorious as it was, it simply does not compare to the glory of Christ. It, and the realities of the new covenant that he brought about, and one of the ways he's making that case to those who were tempted to leave Christ, as we pointed out last week, is not to downplay the old covenant. Not to, not at all. What, what he does, as we said, is say, look, I get it. I know. I, I know how glorious it was. I know that God brought it about. I know that he worked wonders through it. I know that it was glorious in so many ways. But that only goes to show how much more glorious Jesus is. And he surpasses even that covenant that came with breathtaking glory. That's what, that was the point. We said it last week. He's not making, he, he's not making them feel stupid for their temptation to go back to what they knew was glorious and came from God. Um, and so last week, we, we pointed that out from the first five verses of chapter 9, the, where he's talking about the old covenant tabernacle, the different sections of it, the holy place, the most holy place, and all the things that were involved with that, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, and the things that were inside it. Remember the bowl of manna? Aaron's staff that budded, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. We looked at the amazing Old Testament stories that surrounded each one of those things. He's mentioning those things one by one, um, each with its own majestic history in the Old uh, Testament that revealed the glorious uh, majesty of God. He's doing that to confirm to them that he understands how glorious that was. He understands how glorious that system was and why you might be tempted to go back to that 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 system that was glorious in its own right that God, uh, that God brought about, that God delivered to Moses. But again, he's not reminding them of these things to say, you'll be okay if you go back. He's saying, uh, even as glorious as that was, it doesn't compare to the glory of Christ. Um, the old covenant was indeed from God, but it wasn't God's final word. So um, today we're going to look at the remainder of chapter 9. And see how the author, after describing the glory of the Old Covenant in verses 1 through 5, now shifts gears in the rest of the chapter and in his argument to, to describe, not surprisingly, um, the glory of the New Covenant, God's final word. So I want us to read the, the passage together, um, verses 6 through 28, uh, through the end of the chapter, that is, and then we'll see how we'll divide it up and think about it together. So let's read beginning in verse 6. All right, these, these preparations, having thus been made, <clears throat> the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. 
But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more? You see, you see that's the, his argument. This was great, but how much greater is this? How much more will the blood of Christ, verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will, or covenant, as I'll argue in a minute, is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will, or a covenant, as I will argue in a minute, takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, perfect, clear, necessary word. And uh, it is our desire, in fact, it, it, even if it is not our desire, it is our duty to, to bow in, in, in submission to what it says. Because it's not what it says, it's what you say in it. These are your words written through a human author. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us minds to understand the truth that we just read. Give us grace, Father, particularly this morning, to think clearly. Give me uh, grace to think clearly so that I speak clearly. Uh, so that we can understand what he's saying here, you're saying here. Give us hearts to embrace uh, what, what, is, what is said here, to love the truth, not just to know it. And give us wills to obey it so that we do whatever you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, like I said, he's already spent his time on how glorious the old covenant was. So he's going to pivot here and show that as glorious as it was, 
It doesn't compare to Christ and, 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 and the new covenant, and he'll highlight that in particularly three ways. First, in verses 6 through 14, uh, he'll show how the new covenant was accomplished in a more perfect temple. I'm getting that phrase right out of verse 11, uh, where it says he talks about the greater and more perfect tent that Christ entered into. So a more perfect temple. We've already talked about this in chapter 8, but that's intentional. He's repeating himself, so I'll repeat myself. Secondly, uh, in verses 15 to 26, he's going to show that the new covenant in Christ is, is, is greater because it provides, and he provides a more perfect forgiveness. He'll show this in one of the most, frankly, the most difficult passages of Scripture, um, yet one of the most fascinating. And finally, in, verse, in the last two verses, verses 27 and 28, he'll show that it, the new covenant in Christ has a more perfect outcome than the old covenant could ever offer a greater future, a greater reward, a greater hope. There's a lot here, so let's go. Um, let's dig in and think first about uh, how and why it's important that the new covenant was accomplished in a more perfect temple. Like I said, he's already introduced, he's already introduced this theme back in chapter 8. Um, but remember when we were in chapter 8, what I, what I was saying about that chapter. That chapter is like a hinge chapter in, in the argument in, uh, in Hebrews. It's like a hinge. He's... He's closing out, in chapter 8, he's closing out that whole, um, that whole section in 5 through 7 about how Jesus is a greater high priest, and he's swinging open this next section about how he as our great, great high priest is doing his work in a greater temple and offering a greater sacrifice um, in the new covenant. He introduced uh, it there in the last chapter, chapter 8, but he's fleshing it out further here in chapter 9. We've said it so many times uh, in Hebrews, we don't know who wrote this letter. Uh, several educated guesses have been made, but nobody knows for sure. But whoever it was had a very orderly mind. Just had a very, he writes in a very orderly, really logical way. And we see uh, some of that in, in, in this first point, the way he makes this first point. So again, we see this first point in, in verses 6 through 14. Uh, and, it, and it may not be immediately apparent when you're just looking at your Bible, but, it, but what he's doing in these verses, 6 through 14, is a, uh, is a back and forth, point by point comparison between the tabernacle and the old covenant and that of the new. And the reason it may not be immediately apparent is because he makes all his points about the old covenant uh, in verses 6 through 10. And then uh, in verses 11 through 14, he makes his points about the new covenant uh, but then when you look closely, you realize that in 11 through 14, he's going back point by point of the verses he, points he made in 6 through 10 to make his point. Let me just try to show you what I'm talking about. So look at verse 6. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priest, and he's talking old covenant here. These preparations thus have been, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duty. So he's talking about the old covenant tabernacle, the old covenant, the place where the old covenant high priests did their work, the earthly tabernacle. That's verse 6. Now skip down and look at verse 11. Here's his comparison. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with uh, hands, that is not of creation. We'll stop there. It's not a complete sentence yet, but we'll stop there. But you see in verse 11, he's no longer talking about old covenant priests in an earthly and, 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 and very physical tabernacle, 
But now it's Jesus in verse 11 doing His work, not in that earthly tabernacle, but affecting heaven itself. That's the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not something you could build with hands, but the place where God Himself is. So that's 6 and 11. That's a comparison. Now look at the first half of verse 7. But into the second, back to the old uh, covenant. Into the second uh, section of the tabernacle, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. That's in the old covenant. The high priest would go into the most holy place only one time a year. Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. How does that compare to the new covenant? Look at the first half of verse 12. But he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places. So not just once a year, but once for all. And not uh, an earthly most holy place behind a physical curtain, but as we've already seen, the very heavenly presence of God himself. Comparison continues. How, when the old covenant priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, how did he go? How did he go into that place? Look at the second half of verse 7. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So he brings with him sacrificial blood from an animal for, sin, for his own sins and for the sins of the people, even their unintentional sins. But Christ is better here too. Because look at the comparison with that in the second half of verse 12. Jesus entered heaven itself not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by means of His own blood. Why is that better? He says so in the next comparison. Back to verse 8. Telling what the old covenant high priest accomplished in the most holy place on that one day of year He went in there. He says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing. So no matter how many years, no matter how many days of atonement came around, how many years they went offering the blood of goats, blood of calves, the way never was opened. The way was not yet opened for all the people. Compare that to the work that Jesus did at the end of verse 12. But by, but by means of His own blood, He secured an eternal redemption. Jesus opened the way. Jesus opened the way that was never able to be opened before. Those old sacrifices uh, that God commanded to be offered once a year on the Day of Atonement, what were they? They were simply pointers and placeholders until the real sacrifice came. And he makes that clear in the last comparison. Look at verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body until the time of reformation. So those sacrifices could not perfect your conscience. Like, they did not, why could they not do that? Because they did not really erase your guilt. I mean, compare that to Jesus' work in verses 13 and 14. For if the, if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He, his blood, unlike the old sacrifices, His blood can purify our conscience because it actually does erase our guilt. I mean, it frees us, it says, it frees us from dead works. Dead works. That means 
We don't have to try to make up for our past sins. I cannot erase today's guilt by trying to do better or be better tomorrow. Right? That's a dead work. That's a dead end from the start. Jesus, the point he's making, Jesus, our high priest, who offered a better sacrifice in a more perfect temple, namely who offered himself, the sacrifice of himself, and rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven itself, now to plead his case, plead his sacrifice for his people, he makes, in doing all that, he makes the old covenant and all of its arrangements for worship look like a mere shadow of the real thing that Jesus accomplished because that's what it was. Notice, he says it. He says it at the end of verse 10 that the whole Old Covenant system would only remain in place until the time of Reformation. Until the time of Reformation. When was that? When Christ came. That's why verse 11 begins. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. What good things had come? The time of Reformation. The time when the reality the reality that was casting that shadow the whole time was now made visible for all to see. The temple of the Old Covenant was always pointing forward to a more perfect temple that would one day be revealed in the New Covenant. And in the verses that follow, verses 15 to 26, he keeps making this point from a slightly different angle. Not by by continuing about the more perfect temple that Jesus entered into with his work but by the more perfect forgiveness pointed to by the old and accomplished in the new this is the whole i need y'all to think with me here okay um the whole point of this passage verses 15 to 26 as fascinating as it is it's just as difficult to see sometimes in our bibles because of the way that it is most often translated um I don't want to get too technical on you, but I need to say a little bit so that you'll get how I understand these verses and what I think he's saying. That's important. It all comes down to one word in Greek, okay? Um, And and, and it's translated, that one word in Greek is translated in two different English words here, okay? The Greek word is diatheke, diatheke, which is the Greek word for covenant, covenant and it's always hear me on this it's always translated covenant in the new testament it's always translated it's even translated as covenant all the way throughout hebrews except for these verses right here well time out i'll give kudos to the new american standard version because they get it right um they alone get it right so you, uh, here's what I want to show you what I'm talking about. So you see this word, diatheke, translated covenant. You see this word first at the end of verse 15, uh, where it is translated covenant, the transgressions committed under the first diatheke, the first covenant. But if you keep reading into verse 16, here's what you read. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it is, must be established. Then in verse 17, for where a will for a will takes place only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And just for kicks, go ahead and look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant, diatheke, was inaugurated without blood. So verse 15, covenant. Verse 16, will. Verse 17, will. Verse 18, covenant. 
you'd think it's translating two different Greek words there, but no, it's diatheke all four times. All right? It's covenant everywhere else. But I don't think that's the best translation. Kudos to the New American Standard. I think if you keep it covenant all the way throughout, it makes, it makes uh, perfect sense. <laughs> like, and I'll do my best to be as clear as I can and show you what I mean. Uh, whoever was the author of Hebrews was just insanely brilliant. First of all, verse 15 is the guiding, notice in verse 15, the guiding thought of the whole argument here. He says in verse 15 <clears throat> that Jesus is the mediator of a better, the Ephake, a better covenant, the covenant that we're all under as believers right now, by the way. Why? Because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying sins committed in the Old Testament, sins committed under the, under the first covenant, under the old covenant, they were not forgiven by those old covenant sacrifices. He says... Because something now has happened that redeemed them from those sins, as if they weren't yet redeemed. By the way, you'll also notice that he's, there's a reference in that verse, verse 15, to a prom, receiving a promised inheritance, which is probably why some translate it will in the next two verses. But there's a better way to understand that too. But in that guiding thought, that he's making a claim that all of those sins uh, committed throughout the Old Testament, they weren't redeemed. Until Christ came, it's, it's, it's just like Paul says in Romans 3.25, that God had, just, God all that time, God was just passing over those sins until the greater sacrifice came. So that's setting up the implied question here. Why? Why? Why were they not redeemed in the Old Covenant? Why were they not redeemed and forgiven until Christ came? What was wrong with those sacrifices of the Old Covenant? That's his point here. Let's try to follow what he's saying. I'm going to translate the word as covenant in, in, throughout these, this passage and let's, instead of will, and let's see how it goes. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a covenant takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So if this is right, and I think it is, he's talking about the, 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 the ceremony in the Old Testament, the ceremony in the Old Testament where, whereby covenants were established. So looking at these verses a little closer, stay with me here. It set, where it, in that phrase where it says uh, a covenant takes effect only at death, to get a little more technical, that, that phrase, at death, is plural in the, in the Greek. So it literally says, at deaths. Uh, and I think, that's, I think he's, that's a figurative phrase, that he could be saying something like, over dead bodies. Over dead bodies. At deaths. All right? And in that context, if he's using it figuratively in that way, it would be a perfectly normal thing to say. Because it describes exactly how the covenant, it, the, 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 the ceremony whereby God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. You might remember that. Do you remember the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15? Uh, go home and read that if you want to. Uh, but the way, just to summarize it, God wanted to establish a covenant with Abraham 
And it's a weird, it's a weird sounding ceremony to us. Genesis 15. He says, go get some animals. Kill them. Cut them in half. Set them opposite each other. Make a path between them. And then we're going to make our agreement. And, and normally in the normal covenant-making ceremony, the, the agreement would be, be made, and then the two parties would pass between those dead animals. Why? They're basically saying, may I become like these dead animals if I don't keep my end of the bargain? May, I'm calling down a curse. I'm calling down my own death if I don't keep my end of the deal. That's how a covenant was made. In, in Abraham's case, though, by the way, remember... He has Abraham do all of that. And at the point where God on one end of the deal and Abraham on the other end of the deal would pass through, he puts Abraham to sleep. And God is the only one who passes through the pieces. Saying, God is saying, Abraham, this is not dependent on you at all. I'm going to do it. Right? So he's calling down a curse on your own head if you break it. That's, that's, that's the deaths. That's over dead bodies that I think he's talking about in Hebrews 9. And you see the, the reason I think that is because you see the same ceremony structure later on down the road, not with Abraham, but with Moses and, the, and the, uh, the covenant that God established with the people through Moses, which you can read about in Exodus 24. And that's what he's talking about in verses 18 through 22. We don't have time to read all that, but the, the, in Exodus, that was Genesis 15 with Abraham. You move on down the road to Exodus 24 and God had given the people the law through Moses in Exodus 20. And in Exodus 24, well, from that point, Moses read the law. He came down from the mountain, he read the law to the people. And in Exodus 24, that's described in these, these verses right here, he read the law and all the people said, we'll do it. We will obey. We will be obedient. Very optimistic. A little too optimistic. We'll, be, we'll obey. We'll, okay, and, and then what did Moses do? What is described in these verses? Essentially, just like with Abraham, instead of passing, killing animals, setting them aside and passing through them, they killed animals, took the blood, and Moses sprinkled some on the people and sprinkled some on the altar, basically calling the curse down on either party that breaks the terms of the covenant. Same reason with Abraham. Calling down curses if you disobey. Well, they did disobey. And so the whole rest of the law was set up so that they offered sacrifices every single year to stay God's wrath for their disobedience. But no real forever forgiveness or redemption was ever achieved. Why else were they offering them every year? Why else did God command that they offered them every year? Because God knew. God knew that they couldn't atone for the sins of the, the, the blood of Bulls and goats and calves and ashes of heifer could not, could not atone for sins committed by people who were made in God's image. They were, they were signs pointing to something better, and that's the whole point of verses 23 through 26. That's why he reminds us in verse 23 that all of those things were just copies of what was coming. Verse 24 reiterates the first point that Jesus was effecting in a greater temple. Since he doesn't appear in, an, in the earthly place of the tabernacle, but in the very presence of God when he arose and he ascended. Verse 25 again shows that unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, Christ sacrificed himself once 
not repeatedly every year. Why not? Because of the climactic point here in verse 6 that a more perfect forgiveness was accomplished. He put away sin. He put it away. And he did it so completely that like we saw back in verse 14, our consciences are cleansed from all guilt before God through faith in what Jesus has done. Paul would say it this way in Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the last point here. That Jesus in the new covenant bring, brought about a more perfect outcome. I want to see that very, very quickly. And then we'll discuss some of these things around our table. This is, his, I think, his point in the final two verses of, of the chapter. That because our sins are so fully and finally forgiven in the death of Christ, we are freed from two potentially fearful realities. One, death. And two, the judgment of God that will happen at the second coming of Christ. Death and the judgment of God and the return of Christ, both of which are certain certainties to happen. He says in verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, there's no reason to fear either death or the judgment if we're trusting in the death and judgment of Jesus in our place. But he goes on in verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The return of Christ, I mean, if you read Scripture, is a, is a sobering day, to be sure. I mean, in, in, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns, all those who have not trusted in him are crying out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from him who is coming. They want to crawl under a rock. And we sing, it is well with my soul. There's always a curious phrase in there to me. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Even so? I've always felt that was a, a, a curious two words there. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. I think it makes sense when you go, whereas somebody might call for a rock to fall on them and hide them on that day, even so for us, come Lord Jesus. Far from being a, a, a fearful day, this verse says we can eagerly wait for that day. It, it, it's a more perfect outcome in the new covenant because christ is god's final word there is nothing else to come save his coming again the outcome is that all that we are promised in christ in this new covenant he's the mediator of a new covenant these promises are ours that are ours through faith in christ the, the, the greater outcome is that the, all these things that are ours through faith now will, will one day become ours by sight. And this is what he's going to say so beautifully. 
Hebrews just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds on, it, on, it, on itself. Don't think what he's saying here in chapter 9 is going to go away. It's going to build until at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter 11. He'll say it so beautifully at the last two verses of chapter 11. This is what he'll say. He'll, he'll go through all that list of Old Testament saints who were believing in the coming Messiah. And he'll say, and all these, verse 39, all these, who, all who? We're talking Abraham, Moses, all these Old Testament saints, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Did God fail them? No. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Does it mean they're not going to be made perfect? No, it means we're all going to be made perfect at the same time. We're all going to go in together. All those who from the very beginning until now who have trusted in the sacrifice of Christ that God would provide, we go in together. It's a greater outcome. It's a greater outcome. Christ did His work in a more perfect temple, accomplished a more perfect forgiveness, which brought about a more perfect outcome. I want to pray, and then I want to give us some time to talk about these things around our table.